John. Oh, it's on. Okay, great. Hey, City Light U. Uh, how's it going? Okay, great. Like John said, I'm Skyler. A uh, few things about me. I'm a senior at UNO, and I'll be graduating in May with a business degree. All right. Um, after I graduate, I'm moving to Lincoln, uh, where I have a job with Huddle. And so I'm excited about that. But I'm also really excited because I'm engaged. My, my lovely fiance is right there, and she's pretty awesome. Yeah, so we're getting married in September, and we're really excited about that for sure. Uh, another thing about me is that I'm a huge nerd. Uh, I live in Scott Hall, a.k.a. Nerd Castle. Represent. And what comes with being a nerd is that I really like nerdy things, like um, video games and sci-fi stuff. But additionally, I also really like Marvel. And the Marvel Cinematic Universe is something that I really like nerd out about. And I have a funny story that actually kind of irritated my fiance about a month ago. So you know those countdown apps, those really like adorable ones, they're like 364 days until my next birthday type thing, where like countdowns of seconds and stuff? Well, apparently it's an unwritten rule that when you get engaged and you're a girl, the second you set a wedding date, you like start that countdown app. So like seconds counting down until the day of your wedding. Well, anyways, Cassie, my fiance, saw that I had a countdown app on my phone, and she got so excited, she was like, oh, Sky. <laughs> so cute. And so she goes on my phone, opens the app, and then big capital letters. It says, Infinity War, 60 days! <laughs> Exclamation point. And so, yeah, I totally kind of spaced off the wedding with that app. But this movie, Infinity War, was something that I'm genuinely excited about. And even if you're not a Marvel fan, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cast out to you why I'm excited about this as a nerd. So the Marvel Infinity War movie is, there's been 10 years of Marvel movies that have been building up these characters that are just, like, awesome. And you learn more about them, and they come together, and they fight different villains and all this stuff, and it's cool. But the Infinity War finale is, like, this finale that ends all 10 years of that, and everyone's supposed to die. So it's like this really strange conclusion that's like massively intense and just is super intriguing. And what comes with that battle, kind of, what we see in Infinity War is this giant battle where they, the heroes are fighting against this bad guy, Thanos, which really isn't important to this. <clears throat> but what Thanos wants to do is destroy the entire universe. And so even if you're not a Marvel fan, you can kind of get this picture of this battle being fought for the entire universe. In the trailer, we see destruction and death and turmoil and the sky opening up and war all over the galaxy and all this crazy stuff, all for this battle for the entire universe. And so it's got this magnitude that we can't even really comprehend. And the reason why I share this with you is because our text today in Galatians 5 is Paul telling us something that goes beyond that, that is larger than that, except it in real life affects each person in this room. What Paul is writing about in Galatians in this section is that there is a battle, an eternal and cosmic battle, that is literally being fought for the people in this room. Whereas the Marvel Universe is some weird fantasy land for nerds, this battle is literally being fought for you and for me. And it is the most important thing that we can pay attention to. And so up to this point in Galatians, what Paul has been doing is he's been basically beating the dead horse of the gospel. And we've seen that week after week, and that everything that people throw at the Galatians, Paul corrects it by saying, no, faith alone in Jesus Christ is what saves. Circumcision, faith, no, you don't need that to be saved. It's faith alone in Jesus Christ. Works to the law, faith alone in Jesus Christ. 
That's all it is. That's what he's telling us. And what we see at the end of Galatians is kind of the shift to more Christian instruction. And especially in, this, in these verses, we see a pivot of Paul showing us what our lives should look like in light of the gospel. And so what Paul's going to show us in these verses today is that we can join this battle happening because Jesus Christ has already won the war. So what Paul's doing at this point is he's kind of outlining a story. Now, like any good story, it's got your main characters and your conflict and your, your um, point of kind of what it has to do with the people watching. And, and it's got this kind of stem of where it all came from. And what Paul's doing is he's outlining all that for us in this battle. And so I've broken it up into three sections. And if you're anything like me and you hear the sections usually from the pastor and forget them immediately, um, I've tried to make that as simple as possible. So our three sections for today are the who, the fruit, and the root. So the who, the fruit, and the root. Okay. So the who, <laughs> the who is what we're going to start with. And what we're looking at is our main characters. Basically, who is in this battle? Why are they in conflict? And what does it have to do with us? And for that, we're going to be looking in verses 16 through 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So to start out, what is so evident in these verses is the clear verbiage of opposition. Six times in these three verses, we see opposition being talked about. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do, but if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So very clear opposition. These two sides are battling. So we want to look at who are the two sides. Well, very clearly, Paul lays it out. There's the Spirit, and there is the flesh. And so we want to look at who is the Spirit and who is the flesh. So to start with the Spirit, I think what a lot of people think of when we talk about Spirit is like our inner being or our soul. That's not what's being referred to here in Galatians. Notice the capitalization. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, so the Spirit of God. Now what the Spirit of God is, is not, is he's not like medicine. He's not some foreign object that like fills us and makes us better as we go along. No, the Spirit of God is a member of the Trinity who has existed before all creation. He is the breath and life into creation. We see that this, this spirit is the same spirit that rose Jesus Christ from the dead, where he then ascended into heaven, defeated sin, and then that spirit then directly applies that salvation to the individual believer, filling them and walking with them and leading them through Christian living to look more like Jesus. And the main function of the Spirit in that case is to lead us into repentance, into faith. And so what repentance is, is when we look at our sin, we turn from that sin and turn to Jesus. So two parts, turning away from our sin, turning to Jesus. And that comes from the Spirit convicting us and leading us to do that. So that's our, so that's our Spirit. Now the flesh, on the other hand, is very simply the sin of the world that we're born into. It's, in the Bible, referred to as being spiritually dead meaning that when we are in the desires of the flesh, that we can't just wash ourselves and make ourselves better to earn God's favor. We need something to bring us to life. So when I said the Spirit's not like medicine, the Spirit is more like a defibrillator that literally shocks us and brings us back to life. And so that's the balance between the two. 
So we have the two sides. Now what exactly do they have to do with each other, and what do they have to do with us? And for that, we're going to look in verse, the tail end of verse 17, which says, um, for, well, we can just read verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So the back end of that says to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So these are in conflict with one another over the things that we want to do. Our heart, our desires, what we desire to do. And so what do the two sides desire to do? The Spirit, being the Spirit of God, desires for us to find our satisfaction in Jesus. Desires for us to be satisfied and for us to find everything that we are and all of our identity to pursue Jesus Christ. Because God is the one true thing that can actually satisfy us to our deepest being. And the Spirit desires for that to be the case, that we pursue Jesus. Now the flesh, on the other hand, I think a lot of people think of the flesh and Satan as like wanting the villages to be burned down and like people running around in mass hysteria and things like that. But that's not at all what the flesh and Satan desire. What the flesh desires is to do the exact same thing that the Spirit desires to do to satisfy us, just using anything that is not Jesus Christ. And so how that looks is the desire of the flesh uses things that God gives us that are good and, ch and, and then makes it into something that is our God for us to desire to satisfy us like Jesus is supposed to. So if we look at a practical example like sex, God gives us sex as a good gift for marriage. And marriage has that gift because it's God's picture of the gospel to the world. That intimacy and commitment between two people, God gives us that gift, and it's a good thing. Sex is a good thing. I'm not married yet, but I've heard <laughs> that it is a good thing. And what, what the desires of the flesh can't want to do is for us to take sex and elevate it to the level of satisfaction that we're supposed to find in Jesus. And as we know, that cannot satisfy. It, le it leads to things like pornography addiction, sleeping around with your boyfriend or girlfriend, lusting after other people, falling into that, and it doesn't satisfy. So that's our works of the flesh, and that's how the spirit and the flesh have conflict and what it has to do with us. So this imagery that I think of is two trees, that when we are in the flesh and that death, that it's like a tree that's literally just dead. Like you can't do anything but be dead. And the spirit bringing life is like a live tree. And that's why our next section is about the fruit, because trees produce fruit, and I'm clever. So what we're going to do, <laughs> so what we're doing now, after that we've seen our main characters and what they have to do with us, we're going to see what those things, the spirit and the flesh, produce, and what that implies for our lives. So we're moving on to the fruit section now. And so for the fruit section, we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 23. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So our illustration for the fruit is, if we go back to the tree illustration, it's very simple. If you're walking through an apple orchard and you see the live tree and the dead tree, and both of them have fruit on them, you pick this apple off the live tree and eat it, and it's delicious, and you go on your way. 
The dead tree, on the other hand, is like black and gross, kind of moldy, but you walk up and you eat the fruit anyways, and you eat that, and then you start vomiting incessantly. And the picture behind it is that each of, that both of these things produce fruit that lead to a consequence. And that's exactly what Paul's showing us in this. So what we're going to do is walk through this verse exactly as we walk through the who. So the first thing to see in these verses is the word works, and that that is a plural word. The reason why that's important that it's a plural word is because what Paul is showing us is that if we do any combination of these things, it puts us in the classification of being part of the works of the flesh. You don't have to do all of them. You just have to do one or two or three or however many. If you're in that category, then you are part of the works of the flesh. And so we're not going to look at all of these. Instead, we're just going to look at a few. We're going to look at sexual impurity, jealousy, and drunkenness. Now, before we dive into that, I want to say that you are not standing here being told this by someone who stands unaccused before you. I'm the first one to tell you that I've, I struggle day in and day out with sexual impurity, with jealousy. I don't personally struggle necessarily with drunkenness and temptations with that, but entertainment, body image, jobs, payment, or money, and things like that, like you put all of those in there, I'm there, and I struggle with these things day in and day out, so I'm right with you. So we're going to look at those three things, sexual impurity, jealousy, and drunkenness. Sexual impurity, like we already talked about, is God gives us the gift of sex, and when we, and the desires of the flesh, make that God, and make that something that we chase after to satisfy us, and we know that it doesn't, and it leads to all those things that I listed beforehand, and we do it all the time. Sexual impurity is so common. I struggle with it every single day, and I'm sure that there are people in this room who do too, and it is just crushing. The next one is jealousy. And what jealousy is, is God gives each person gifts and blessings individually. And so different things like your attributes and who you are and even your circumstance, like your job and things like that. And what jealousy is, is when we look at something that another person is blessed with and say that if I had that, that job, that money, that circumstance, that boyfriend, that girlfriend, then I would be satisfied. And so jealousy then produces all sorts of things which just lead to us yearning for something that we will never have. And the more you yearn for something that you don't have, the more that it just breaks you. And then the last one is drunkenness. Um, I think this is something that is super common with college students. Uh, we ex either have experienced it directly or know people who struggle with it now. And another thing why I think it's important is because alcohol in itself is not a bad thing. Like Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. But what God gives us as a gift can be so tangibly seen in the desires of the flesh when we take alcohol or any pleasure-inhibiting substance and make that the thing that we chase to satisfy us. Especially with drunkenness, you can see so tangibly that it's a desire that only when you have that substance can you be satisfied. And again, it just breaks us. That's why I think that Paul says the works of the flesh are evident. Because don't we feel that? If you just slept with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, you just watched pornography, you, you, a hangover the next morning, or if you've been yearning for something you will never have, doesn't that just weigh on our souls and break us? And don't we feel that? That's why Paul says it's evident, because it is. We know that those things do not satisfy us. And so when I see those things, I see that I fall in the category of the works of the flesh, and that all of us fall in the category of the works of the flesh, which is why the next verse worries me a lot. And that's in verse 21, when it says, I warn you as I warned you before, 
that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now the reason why this worries me is because not inheriting the kingdom of God does not just mean that you cannot be with God forever, which is clearly the worst part of that. The one true God who can satisfy us and love us perfectly forever It's saying that those who do the works of the flesh can't be there, but it's also referring to hell, who Jesus Christ himself said it would be better that you had not even been born than to go to hell. It's not something to screw around with, and it's not something, and it frightens me to hear Paul say that, because I'm in that category. But that can't be what Paul's trying to say here in light of the entire book of Galatians. So we have to keep reading. So starting in verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So that's good news, right? Against such things there is no law. So this fruit of the Spirit, has we see this, this wording of Paul that there's freedom against the law, right? That there's freedom against not entering the kingdom of God. There's freedom against our effort trying to earn God's righteousness. And so it's good news. It's exciting news that we have freedom there. And I was excited as I read it, but then I kept reading it, and I kept reading it, and I kept reading it. And I got less and less excited. And here's why. In verse 22, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit is a singular word. Where the works of the flesh was a plural word, meaning that any combination of these things puts us in that category, the fruit of the Spirit is one fruit. One fruit that is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all growing together in unison. And the reason why that discourages me as I read this is because we can't do that. Let me prove it to you. How many of you in here have ever set a New Year's resolution? So like, I'm going to lose weight, I'm going to be healthier, and then like January 3rd, you're smashing a box of Cosmic Brownies? Like, that's me anyways. But, but imagine if you're sitting next to your friend, and your friend looks at you, and he's like, oh, man, this year, I just want to love people better, be more joyful, have more peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, want to have more self-control, be more faithful. You'd be like, bro, calm down. Let's pick, like, one, maybe two of those and work on those and how we can get better with those this year. And the reason why I guarantee that every person here would say that is because we know innately that it is impossible for a person to grow in all of those things all at once. We physically cannot do it. It's something that is divine of God and only his work that can do that. And so we would be missing the point anyways by looking at the entire book of Galatians and saying that we should pursue love or joy or things like that to find freedom in the law. That's not what Paul is trying to tell us. So what I think he's trying to tell us is if we look at those um, things that come from the spirit and the flesh, so the love and the joy and the peace on one side, and the sexual impurity and the jealousy and the drunkenness on the other side, just like the battle that the spirit and the flesh are in, the fruits that they produce are directly in battle with one another. They are directly contradicting each other all the time and do not mesh at all. And so what Paul is trying to tell us in this warning about not inheriting the kingdom of God is he's giving a warning to those who say that they have the Spirit, 
are Christians and yet have no evidence in their life of having a battle that the Spirit will always produce. So that repentance that we talked about, that the Spirit leads us to repentance of fighting our sin and turning to Jesus, that if you don't have that in your life, if you don't see yourself fighting sin and turning to Jesus, then you, there is evidence that you do not have the Spirit and that you are not a Christian. So it is an extremely serious warning that he's giving these, the Galatians, and I'd say he's giving us directly, that there will be a battle if you have the Spirit, that there will be a battle. Now the reason why I was so excited that I got put with these verses to preach is because these verses directly changed my life. You see, when I came to college, I was a Christian, meaning that I grew up in a Jesus-loving home and a Jesus-loving family, and I knew the answers to things. And more than that, I loved hanging out with Christians. I was not a bad kid. I loved going to church. On, I'd come to City Light on Tuesdays, and I'd raise my hands during worship and say amen when the pastor would drop a bomb. And, like, I could go to Bible studies. I could contribute. I could lead Bible studies. I knew all the answers. And everybody outside of me would look at me and say, that guy is a Christian. And I would look at myself and say, I'm a Christian. And yet my friends closest to me had a very different theory. You see, a friend of mine sat down with me with these verses, and he said, Skylar, the Spirit and the flesh are directly in a battle with one another. And I do not see that battle in your life. I don't see you battling your sin and pursuing Jesus like the Spirit will do. Undoubtedly, He will do it. And so I don't think you're a Christian. You know how mad that made me? Most of you are probably thinking, tell me you just slapped that dude and walked out of the room and never talked to him again, right? But let me tell you something about you, that that guy to this day is still one of my best friends. And I will owe him forever because he loved me enough to actually sit down with me and give me truth that hurt, but give me truth from the Bible that pierced my heart. Because what happened after that is that I looked at my life and I said, you know what, maybe he's right. Maybe I don't have a battle going on. Maybe I'm not battling my sin and pursuing Jesus. Maybe I'm not a Christian. And what that left me in was this state of hopelessness. And if I could be anything for you guys tonight, it would be, I pray that I can be that voice that could look at some of you in the audience who can evaluate your life unbiasedly and see, wait, is there a battle in my life? Because it's not a bad thing to be honest with yourself and say, maybe there's not. Because that means that you know where to go next. So what I was left with was this state of complete hopelessness. And I think that's where we are in our text right now, because we have all these things that we do that lead to not inheriting the kingdom of God, and we have this one fruit that leads to our freedom that we can't get. So basically, we're in a state of hopelessness. But thank goodness that Galatians does not end there. You see, back with the tree illustration, these things keep leading for us just this dead tree, and we cannot do anything to bring us back to life. Just like a regular tree could not bring itself back to life. We cannot do that. 
And so what Paul is telling us with this is that we don't have the power to do it. What a tree has to do in order to come back to life is the root that is giving it life has to change. That there has to be a change that does not come from your work. And so to figure that out, we're going to look at the root. And our root is going to be in verse 24 through 26. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So here we actually have our answer. Here we have our warrior, Jesus, who looked at our hopelessness, that state of just being burdened by the works of the flesh, and came to earth and did so much more than fight our battle. He literally won the war for us. You see, what these verses tell us about the flesh is that their number, the flesh's number one weapon is those passions and desires that gravitate us away from the Spirit and away from Jesus. And what Christ did when he came to earth was he literally disarmed the enemy. You see, Jesus, what Paul is telling us here is that Jesus won the war and literally defeated the power of the flesh. So that we are called to go into battle because Jesus has already won that war. He freed us from the punishment of sin with his sacrifice. And he frees us from the power of sin through his death and defeating that. Until we die and are freed from the presence of sin forever in heaven. And let us not look past the word crucified. But the reason why that is possible is because Jesus came on this earth. And while we did not deserve it, he died on a cross for us. Was tortured because he loved us. And he didn't need to. But he did. He's a warrior who came down and won the war for us. Also, look at the past tense of crucified. Jesus was not lying when he said, it is finished. That war is won. So we can give our lives to the king who has already secured everything for us. And we can join that battle joyfully, not hoping that we win it, but assured that it is already won. See, in this battle of the spirit and the flesh, the king of the world came and gave up his flesh so that we could be given his spirit. In our state of hopelessness, he gave us assured hope. At this point, Paul could have stopped writing. But he continues because the Christian life does not call for complacency. Paul is going to give us a charge here. And I think that there are three groups of people in this room right now. The first would be, I believe, that there are professing Christians in this room. People who have given their life and surrendered their life to Jesus. The second would be, I also believe, there are professing non-Christians in this room. And I just want to say, thank you for being here and listening to me talk, and I'm so happy you're here, and that's awesome. And then the third group would be, I've been praying that there are people in this room that are like me my freshman year of college, that can see their life, and think, wait a minute, I don't know if there's a battle here. I don't actually know if I have the Spirit. I don't know if I'm a Christian. And 
it, let me just say, I have been in all three of those camps. I've been there. And Paul has a charge for each of those. So the first is for the Christian. In verse 25, it says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. As a Christian, what keeping in step with the Spirit, what being led by the Spirit, what walking with the Spirit means, is pursuing what the Spirit desires for us to pursue. Looking at the glory of Jesus and everything that He did for us, leaving behind our sin and pursuing Him. Pursue Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. Being a Christian means to join the battle that the Spirit is battling. So as we, we are lucky that the Spirit does not convict us of all of our sin right when we're saved, or we would probably like explode. But what that means is we walk in our faith, that we will continue to see sin in our lives that we are not battling, that we are not fighting. And what Paul's call here for us is to battle that sin. To look at the sin in your life, push it away, and pursue Jesus Christ. So if you are, have been addicted to pornography for five years, you are a Christian and it is burdening your soul, bring it to a friend. Confess that. Get a lock on your phone. Snap your laptop in half. Whatever it is, battle that sin. If you're having sex with your boyfriend or your girlfriend or random people, break up with them. Draw some boundaries. Go before other people confess that, pray about it, and let other people walk with you to battle that sin. Whatever it is, the Bible is calling us here to battle that like the Spirit is always battling. And it's not to pursue battling sin to get more of Jesus. It's pursuing Jesus, which leaves behind our sin. For the next group, the professing non-Christian, can I say there's a charge in here for you too, in verse 24, where it says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. My charge to you and Paul's charge to you is to belong to Christ Jesus. Because through him, we have freedom. Now, if you're asking me, okay, well, that's great. What the heck does that mean? Which I would imagine you probably are. I've got three things for you. And even if you're a Christian in the room, listen to these because they're very easy to remember and explain them to people who are not Christians. My three things for you to belong to Jesus are to know the truth, agree with the truth, and trust in the truth. The first one is knowing the truth. We just heard the truth. The fact that we are hopeless, that we cannot do it ourselves, and yet Jesus did it for us. That's the truth. Agreeing with the truth is do you see the sinfulness of the world and your sin, and do you see Jesus Christ, that he came in, on this earth and died for your sins? Do you agree with that? And then the third thing is trusting in that truth. Surrender your life to the king who already won the war. Trust and rest in that hope that is assured through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and his love. Belonging to Jesus is so crucial because it gives us that freedom. We have hope in Jesus Christ. And what the Bible is telling us here is that if you do not belong to Jesus, you need to. <laughs> Then for the third group, the people who I hope are sitting out there who are probably maybe angry at me or maybe are confused, um, thinking, I don't know where the battle is in my life. I don't actually know if I'm even a Christian. My charge is the same to you that it was to the last group, that we can't pursue our own self-righteousness, that we can't know the answers 
or raise our hands in, time, in church enough times for God to say, okay, cool, I'll let you in. But we can't do it. But turn from that and realize that Jesus did it. It is a beautiful thing to see that Jesus Christ has already loved you enough to do everything for you. And that is what this is calling us to do. And I would just say that you get to join the battle for a, an army that has already won the war through its king. See that you? It is a battle going on for our souls. And we have a king who has already won the war. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, I want to thank you for bringing people here tonight to hear your word. Um, and I pray that you would just draw us nearer to you, draw us nearer to Jesus and his power to save. Will there be people here tonight who are convicted of sin to continue battling it? Will there be people here tonight who see Jesus for the first time in the light of how great he is? And will there be people who turn to him and realize that they need him, that Jesus is a necessity to our hope and our joy? Thank you so much for sending the perfect sacrifice. Thank you so much for saving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.